Hi, this is Justin Sosa, and welcome to Hangfire, a Rolling Stones podcast. Hey, everyone, and welcome to a very special chat here on Hangfire. We have a unique talk today, and we're welcoming back a couple guests to help us out in this conversation. Scott Galupo is back. He's the host of Keith Richards' Riff Cousins, the great video series here on YouTube. And Ian McPherson is back, too, the creator of the amazing Stones website, timeisonourside.com. Scott and Ian, so great to have you back. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Great to be here and uh, do this with Scott, too, for the first time. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to it. Before we start, I thought I'd give everyone listening some context on this talk. But uh, basically, all the buzz and the reviews on the new album, Hackney Diamonds, kind of brought this on. We kind of noticed that it kind of stirred up some very familiar chatter among fans and critics. And without fail, it happens every time the conversations always loop back to the usual suspects in the Stones catalog, the classic Jimmy Miller albums or as we affectionately call them, the big four, Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, and Exile on Main Street. And it's that run of albums that we want to focus our talk. And we're here to kind of shake things up a bit. We kind of want to dive into the discussions surrounding those albums and in a way, poke at the narrative bear, if you will. Fans are super confident that these big four represent the, quote, true stones. But I think we're here to push back on that narrative. We know that the Stones have a natural musical fluidity, so could labeling any era as the definitive Stones era or sound be kind of off the mark? So that's a question for today, and that's what we're going to be focusing on in our talk. So using all that as a springboard, my first question to you both, should the Stones really be defined by these classic four albums, Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, and Eggs on Main Street? No, I would submit to you, you guys and everybody listening that you could take the, the box set, the London Years singles collection that came out at the same time as Steel Wheels that Alan Klein's company released, just the singles from 63 through 71. So it has some of Sticky Fingers on it. It's got, it's got Brown Sugar, Sympathy, Honky Tonk, a couple from, well, actually Honky Tonk Women's not even on the big four. You could just take that box set of the singles they released on Abco and they would still be legends. Still second to the Beatles, but just those singles alone, they would be legendary. And the rest of the big four, so-called, are just, it's just gravy. Mm-hmm. Mm. In my opinion. That's a bold, bold statement. I'm with you because, uh, yeah, there's, there's enough there already. Absolutely. If they had died, not just Brian Jones, if they stopped recording, we would look back and, and that body of work alone would have them in the pantheon. But because they keep adding to it, we feel like a, a lot of critics, the, the marketplace combined with critics, the greatness gets diluted the more you add to somebody's body of work. But you, it's still there. Whether, whatever came after it, whatever you think of it, it's, it's still there and it doesn't make it any, like Paul McCartney's solo career doesn't make the stuff he did with the Beatles any less or more great. Because the Spoils were the same band on the same shingle, doesn't make that stuff any more or less great. Well, I would say, I would one up you and say that uh, 
even if you just take the honk compilation and nothing before that, they'd still be legends. How about that? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Ian, what are your thoughts? Yeah, well, when we're, we're talking about are they defined by the classic albums? Uh, so my two main points that I wanted to sort of discuss and challenge in this dis discussion is it are the big four really their peak, right? Is that the very best music they've done and, and nothing before or since compares and is it really their identity uh is it is that what the stones is uh, we're almost like they're the beingness of the stones <laughs> and uh everything before that before they were they were getting there to their real identity that started with beggar's banquet and everything after is less the case i i completely dispute that and just on that question, and I think that the Stones identity is a, is a malleable thing. Now, there's both a continuity in everything they've done and constant change as well. There's both those things in tension. Uh, and this, there, I always, when we have these kinds of discussions, I always think of a quote uh, from Mick Jagger in 71. So this was at the time of the Sticky Fingers release. And what he says here indicates that in responding to the question, it's as if the question was actually seeing Sticky Fingers as a departure from their classic sound, ironically, because Mick says, we're not that band anymore anyway. We're a bunch of different bands. English reviewers seem to have this weird idea of the Rolling Stones as being this band, and we've never been that band, but they imagine we are. We can do that band if we want to. I don't see why we can, can't make a record that doesn't sound like the Rolling Stones. We're not a brand like HP Sauce or something. I mean, that says it all there. And, and he, I think he's always said things along these lines, that, that the Rolling Stones is whatever the Rolling Stones do. People seem to, to, to kind of want to not admit that or something, because like, everyone has their own claim on the Stones. And it's, it's, it's strange that people don't want to admit that it's in the name. They're constantly rolling, constantly changing and adjusting. So it's, it's, it's intuitive, you'd think, but no one seems to want to embrace it. Part of it is just... Uh... You know, when, when Hackney Diamonds came out, when people go back and forth, this is the best since Tattoo You, and we all laugh that everybody says that with each new album. And some of it, some of that is just that they have not, they stopped producing big hits after 1981. When people say that all those albums are from Undercover on or aren't very good, they, chances are they haven't actually listened to them. What they just mean is they haven't put out a big hit, like since Start Me Up. That's all that really means. And um, there is something to that. There's, there's a, a book, meaning to bring this up, I might as well bring it up now. A book by, it's a, and he's an economist at the University of Chicago. I don't know if he still is, but his name is David Gallinson. And Justin, I'll give you the link to the book. It's called Old Masters and Young Geniuses, The Two Life Cycles of Artistic Creativity. And that is not just art history, but art economics, the history of art economics, why mainly in the world of painting, why certain artists, their later works are more valuable or their, their very first, their youngest, younger works are more valuable in, in the marketplace, hundreds of years later in some cases. And he would cut, he's got a frame where there are some artists who are experimental, meaning like Cezanne is one of his examples. They get better with age. That Cezanne was like meticulous about the button on a shirt, and he would spend a lot of time on just these one, these little minute details. And he was like that. Michelangelo was like that. And he got better and better and better with age versus somebody like Picasso, who 
uh, Gallinson, the, the art economist, calls a conceptual artist. I don't love these titles, but basically mean that the concept explodes and like Andy Warhol, eventually you don't, he doesn't even have to touch his art anymore. The concept is pure. I don't even have to touch it. It's not like Cezanne where he's just plot, you know, meticulously getting better and better at his, at his craft. So that's one way of explaining why does the marketplace value late Cezanne more than earlier? So with the stones, trying to think about it inside that frame, you can say they, they stopped making hits after a while, or at least big hits. But as far as explosive concepts, they've had many of those. They didn't have just one. The, the beginning of Beggar's Banquet was a new, and they call it a rebirth, but they didn't ever sound like that before. It's a return to blues and not really, not like... Can I, can I say something about, I think what one of the things that defines that run of albums with Jimmy Miller, apart from the Keith's guitar tunings and all that stuff, <laughs> the old blues tunings, is the rediscovery or the, the bringing, bringing up older blues, uh, acoustic blues and older traditional country sources, you know, in songs like Dear Doctor, whatever. So the roots are coming. I'm sorry, we're, we're calling, it's, it's a bit like, stones and root music the the roots plus this hard rock sheen that comes in you know with mick taylor uh and maybe i'll i'll have a bit more to say about that later on but uh that's i just wanted to, to interject that in what you were yeah. saying great cat blues i mean they don't their chess records blues covers in 1964 that's not the kind of blues roots they're returning to really with beggars banking they didn't sound anything bad you know so Prodigal son. Right, right. So they, as I like to think of them as getting better with age, but they've yeah. had, they've always constantly tinkering and experimenting. They're not just like Picasso or Andy Warhol or Sylvia Plath where, boom, here's my thing and that's it, which can be great in its own right. Um, but they were tinkerers. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's, that's a great way of putting it. And, and, they were doing it consistently throughout their career. If people have been consistently tying these four together throughout the years and the legend grew and grew and they're constantly being paraded out again and again as the, the top four, is, objectively, could we at least identify any particular criteria or characteristics of these four albums that would tie them together, that you could see why people would elevate these up? Or is there anything that truly we could spot and go, well, they were doing X, Y, Z on these four albums and that you got to give them that. Is there anything like that happening? I think, I think in that period, what they did do, and they did create a series of, especially on Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, of archetypal, I wouldn't say archetypal, their biggest war, war horses. Sympathy for the Devil, Street Fighting Man, Jumping Jack Black, Shonky Taunt Women, not just on the albums, but the singles, uh, Midnight Rambler, Give Me Shelter, which became the set list. I mean, they, they, they left that bit in the late 70s and early 80s but when they came back with steel wheels and started doing this these shows that were more like let's comprehensively do the whole career well those songs come up so they have these especially on those first two beggars banquet and let it bleed those really mythical classic songs and and you've got also jimmy miller coming in and it's this is the late 60s and rock music is be starting to become recorded more properly especially bass and drums if you think of late Beatles, like the White Album and Abbey Road. So there's a fatter bottom. And I think the, the Roots music is part of it. The, uh, the Mick Taylor ingredient uh, is, a, is a, a very important element. 
And yeah, those are some of the things that come to mind for me. Yeah, the world's greatest rock and roll band had Mick Taylor and Nicky Hopkins and <laughs> yeah. Bobby Keys in it. You can't, I mean, the personnel really is, personnel is destiny uh, to a certain extent. Um, I mean, N Nicky Hopkins' contributions to that period not be overstated. They're absolutely gorgeous and integral to why those albums are so great. You know, a lot of uh, Stones purists like to treat these classic four albums like as uh, their true identity, like we, we've been saying. But I think we're going into this direction now that an argument could be made that this period, in fact, actually was an outlier in their trajectory in a weird way. And we're kind of alluding to that now. Maybe we can dig into that a bit more. And I guess the second part of this, if we want to attack this later, is, is there an era that properly defines the Stones? Anyone up for that one? I, my thing with the... Uh... I don't know if it's necessarily, we're not attacking, or I don't feel I'm attacking Stones fans. I think what I see mostly is coming from classic rock fans for whom the Stones are one of the bands they esteem and appreciate, but they don't necessarily know the whole catalog, especially post-Tattoo You. And they tend to be very, I would, you know, without getting into stuff about racism, uh, but very white rock, blues rock centered, as opposed to the, uh, because if I was to say, what are the three things I, I was thinking about this that define the Stones for me? The, the first one is that for me, they're a definition of what, what rock and roll is. Huh? They, and we could, the way they swing and we can go into all the, especially on their rockers, right? Starting from down the road of peace to too tight, let's say. And we could, we, I think there's something essentially stonesy there. Uh, the second thing is I think they're a musically very eclectic group that started right at the beginning in terms of jars, right? They would do, they do Chuck Berry rock and roll, but they do coasters, tight 50s R&B, blues. They would be doing, you know, new soul songs coming out from their contemporaries like Otis Redding, Motown, very popish stuff like their own songs like Tell Me or Under the Boardwalk. And that's the third thing I think is that they're based in R&B in black or African-American music. And I think that's, that's always been there and right from the beginning. And when, when people say, or, or, and so, you know, the, to create a cliche of the, uh, the, 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 the classic rock fan will say, oh, I've got my Led Zepp one to four. I've got my beggar's banquet exile. And who's next? And that's all I need to own and know. That's the summit. And I think if, if I would, I think those albums, those Stones albums from that period, from the big four, they, they could be a bit Led Zeppelin-y in that sense. Like you think an album like Sticky Fingers, where there's a lot of, Mick Taylor brought a lot of special things to the Stone, but, and Keith has said this and everything, but it also took away a bit from the classic, weaving of the guitars that then came back with Ron Wood, where you have more of a separation with the lead and the rhythm. And say, if you take a song like Sway, yeah, it's, it's not the swinging stone. I, I love the song, right? But it's, it's very hard blues rock based with very clear separation between lead and guitar. And I think that would appeal to a classic rock fan who, you know, sees Led Zeppelin, Deep Purple and whatever as the, the pinnacle and not Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, Al Green, the Isley Brothers, Bob Marley. Yeah, I don't know that if you guy's not where I'm going with this. Pardon me. 
that guy's not going to like hot stuff. <laughs> exactly. But but yeah. I think when the Stones started adding styles such as funk, disco, and reggae in the mid seventies, they were not changing in any fundamental way. They were only doing what they always had done. They had always been steeped into black musical culture, and I think Stones music, unlike a lot of white rock, has almost always been danceable, even yes. at, at its raunchiest, from around around and around to Street Fighting Man to Brown Sugar, and you could add from Start Me Up undercover of the night to saint of me to angry to me that's what the stones is or that's one of the things that stones is danceable rock yeah and it which is rooted in r&b and the stones themselves i think i've always seen or felt themselves to be more aligned for the most part with black or african-american music blues r&b soul funk gospel and jamaican reggae and um just to to buttress this point there's some some quotes here this is uh, a Barbara Sharon, who was the, the first Keith Richards biographer, was a, was a, wrote articles about the Stones in the mid-70s. So she attended the Stones session during Black and Blue in 74, 75. And she wrote, of the 20-odd records in the room, several Stones albums are the only white music in an Al Green, Stevie Wonder, and Jimmy Cliff collection. I've got Mick Jagger here in 75 who says, I don't consider myself the best rock star, and I never have. There are a lot of people who are good. And since I'm not really interested in white rock and roll, I never go and see them. Uh, Keith Richards in 76 asked if he listens to Jeff Beck, said, I only re really listen to black music these days. I ain't too interested in white bands, rip off white bands, ripped off black bands. And finally, uh, Mick in 77, I, I like this quote because it's re it's really, it, it gets to the core about, you know, the, the, the specialness of the of rhythm in the Stones music and how it's not a stilted white rock. And he was asked about punk rock and he says, I mean, I've never really liked what goes for white rock and roll, you know, never, ever come to that. Speaking as one white person to another, smirked. No, I just can't dance to it. I find it very, very difficult to dance to white people playing because they get all the accents wrong. It's not even that it's too fast. It's just that all the accents are in the wrong places, you know? I mean, I've really always felt like that about white rock from Elvis to the Sex Pistols. And I'm not going to stop thinking that way because of any new band, you know? Wow. I love that quote. And it, it's, it's, I love that it's, it's a technical answer in a way, you know, it, it gets at some more things you could hold on to as to the differences between the two musics. Like think of the 400 odd songs that became classic rock radio in the eighties and nineties. So much of it is just like Smoke on the Water, Grand Funk Railroad. Like, I, those songs are fine, but my God, you got, I, Smoke on the Water still is like a young guitar player will try to learn that riff and that's great, more power to you. But I would rather listen to Hot Stuff or Hand of Fate over those kinds of songs every time, every time. There's a, a guy who used to write for the New York Times, a critic, um, I might mispronounce his name, but Kalefa or Kalefa Sana, S-A-N-N-E-H. He was a really prominent critic. He had an essay in the New York Times, mid-2000s, about what he called rockism. And, and what you're talking about, that stereotypical rockist is overrating or only a song like Sway or, or Rocks Off or Brown Sugar, guitar-driven, Hard rock is is the summa 
of what rock and roll is and anything that's dancey or pop is somehow more transitory and ephemeral and disposable. You know what I mean? And that's rockism. So a lot of critics of the Stones only like their rockist rock, <laughs> if you will. And, and I would say, well, then they don't like the Stones, really, for who they are. And part of it's self-reinforcing. This judgment gets made and then it gets written and somebody reads it and then they just keep regurgitating it through down the years. Like this recovery from the, their satanic majesty's request. When Jumping Black Flash is the rebirth of psychedelia, psychedelia, whatever, psychedelic rock. And if you, I was not old enough to live, to be living through that, obviously, but they put out two albums in 1967. Could, I mean, can you imagine how, how dead were, really were they? 1960 was a year before they had a massive hit and painted black. They were aftermath, their first album of all original material. How dead could they have been in 1967 that they needed to be reborn? That's ridiculous. Ridiculous. But that judgment keeps getting repeated through generations now that Beggar's Banquet is a rebirth from the... Those albums didn't even sell that well. Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers did, Exile Main Street, those albums did not sell that well. Yeah, and it, well, and they weren't... I mean, Let It Bleed and Beggar's Banquet didn't have a hit single i mean they weren't as or app or deca yeah. then was wasn't as market savvy as when they started with rolling stones records right yeah there was no they didn't release sympathy for the devil as a single or give me shelter and that hurt sales as well yeah jumping jack flash and hockey tell women were were just singles they weren't on those right out. and they came out like you know six months earlier yeah so i i just think it's just and the say their satanic majesty's request is underrated like, we love you. We love you. And Have You Seen Your Mother, Baby, Standing in the Shadow are amazing songs. Again, if they stopped recording in, after the London years, you would be looking at We Love You and Have You Seen Your Mother. Think those are right up there with the best of the kinks and the who. And, and they're like footnotes because of all the greatness that came after it. So part of they're just... They're victims of their own prodigious output. What are what are most people missing when they venture through the Stones albums post exile on Main Street? Because it seems like obviously people say, "Oh, I like exile," you know, the big four, and then oh, and then some girls. You know, there's a big gap there, which is you know for us offensive to have that gap. So, what are people mostly missing? You would say different branches. Uh, they continued exploring, and for me, I don't even know. I, I love the the so called big four. Some of those albums, Exile is, is tied for my favorite album. But for me, Some Girls to Undercover is another big four for me. And I probably even prefer it. Doesn't mean I think it's, bad, it's better, but I think for one thing, as great as Charlie Watts always was, and I, I love the, the live Mick Taylor years, 72, 73, they were so hot. I think they swung more as a band in 78 and 81. I think Keith got, uh, Charlie got better. Oh, yeah. And that is, so if I, any track on some girls, just something like just my imagination is, is mind blowing for me. And, uh, every single song on Tattoo You is like, I have like a masterpiece. That's for me, for, for all, many, many reasons. Uh, what Mick does with the vocals on every song on the ballad side, uh, we were talking about on our undercover, uh, talk. 
you and I, Justin, about him creating this little vocal, uh, not operas, what do you call them? Symphonies. So there's so many things to just, you know, and Keith's ballads on the later albums, right? It's very soulful R&B, slightly jazzy ballads that you get on Bridges to Babylon. You're missing all out on all that stuff as well. I did a little video after Charlie died, just my just top five examples of why Charlie was is not simple, not he's, he, people overlook his style whenever they say, oh, he was just a simple, solid, steady backbeat. Like, no, he, he was a very busy drummer in, in some ways. But all five of my examples were from 1978 on. And I didn't even really plan that, I don't think. But all of my favorite Charlie parts, for the most part, are from 1978 on. That's probably uh, true for me also. He'd had some great drum parts, but he did not really come into his own, in my opinion, until his 30s and 40s. And then Ronnie and Keith, I think Ronnie got Keith away from being so blues driven. Ronnie was a more R&B and pop kind of a guy. And the, uh, they, they, their sound changed. Obviously, Mick driving more punk rock, new wave. But Ronnie and the way that Ronnie and Keith, the rapport that they developed, very different from what Keith sounded like before. You know, I think the, the things he came up with, like Little TNA. He would never part with uh, without Ronnie, in my opinion. I, I think for me, the, the thread that makes it very simple for me to be very, you know, brave, if for, for lack of a better word, to explore all of their catalog, especially post Exxon Main Street, especially post Tattoo You, especially post Steel Wheels. I want to make sure I cover all my bases to make people know that I am, I am, I don't just talk about, hey, let's just include Tattoo You more. No, I want to say let's include Bridges of Babylon more in these conversations. My point is, I think I'm primarily, and I have to figure this out for myself, a fan of the Stones as musicians and not necessarily always as songwriters. Obviously, that's that's what makes them special, obviously. And I would even suggest that perhaps that might be the thread that's most, quote, consistent in the big four. The songwriting was there. And so that's what makes it most celebrated. I get it. But um, their musicianship never faltered. In fact, that's probably why I also love those other four albums you mentioned the next big four that you mentioned ian in the late 70s some girls to undercover because uh, it got better and better and i love listening to the musicianship improve and listen to it you know deliver and i think most people miss that or they don't care or they don't put as much value on it when we were doing our undercover track by track we said that like even in songs uh less than stellar it must be hell or whatever it's it's always if you really like them as musicians and what they're doing in the interplay between the guitars bass drums it's it's always fascinating and you you fall in love with that stuff so and it, even if the, the song is is not give me shelter it's you you can love it just as, as much we have to remember that people who are hardcore mega fans like we are are coming at them through somebody else's curation you know, and whether it's these somebody's judgment of these are the essential, you know, if you were to bring up Apple Music or Spotify, you ended with an essential playlist or their most streamed songs. And again, that also becomes self-reinforcing. So the right. songs, Paint, Painted Black is their greatest song ever. Yeah, I think that's their first billion stream. 
That's the only one at present. And I don't, they're like, I don't, there's been talk of trying to boost their streaming numbers and that somebody needs to get on that. I know that there is somebody on that, but they're like one ranked 166th in the world with streaming, which is just uh, criminal. I don't know why, why that is when Queen is like, has twice as many um, monthly listeners almost. I don't, I don't understand. To take nothing away from Queen, but. My first reaction to hearing that is that I think a lot of that success, especially at least with Queen, my guess is like that the movie really helped. Yeah, I think that's right. It's not a very good movie. It was, it was okay. Like, even if you're a fan of Queen, it's not a great movie. Right. Oh, no, I know. I, 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 I label those movies as Wikipedia movies because that's all they are to me. It's like someone got Wikipedia, put it in a script, and then it's all these awkward dialogue. Like, you know, there's a one scene, I forget how it goes, but it's something like the, they're, they're in a meeting with the record executives and the record executive said, but no, you don't understand. No one's ever done that before in the history of music. I go, oh, thanks, Wikipedia. That's why I really don't want there to be a, a one about the Stones. I don't think they do either. I don't know. Maybe for that reason, right? Well, how about the, when they're coming up with We Will Rock You and uh, the guy who plays Freddie Mercury, I can't remember, recall his name, but it's just like, the, how do you condense a, the creative process into a couple scenes? And he's just like, Grit, what's the lyric? And like, that's just not, that's not how it works. It's like, Yeah, and, and I, I, so I think that might be the missing gap is what can catapult the streaming numbers to match, you know, something like that is that there needs to be a vehicle that people can marry the music to an image, to a thing that they can kind of plant a flag like, oh, this is the whole package. And I think that the Stones are maybe avoiding that. And I think this is the byproduct of that. That's just my idea. Because these, these documentaries, although great, Crossfire Hurricane or whatever they may be, they just don't cut it to reach that level. No, no, they're not re reaching the kind of, uh, yeah. It's about no, it's a numbers game at that point. Contrary to what most people feel and what I always see in the conversations, should the Stones have ended after Exile on Main Street? Most assuredly not. No. Nobody would have even said that at the time because it takes the fullness of time to really appreciate how great, great that record is and was. And who's to say, you know, there may be things 50, 100 years from now that, get, that do finally get discovered and appreciated. All the three of us and many thousands of other people derive a tremendous amount of pleasure from all these all these other albums. And whether or not whatever the critical the the regurgitated critical reputation of the band is secondary to our personal enjoyment of that music. And that's that's what it's all about. Yeah, I, yeah. I completely agree. I mean, that those kinds of claims that should have ended in 72 or 74, they're completely insane. And they're a reflection of a very narrow view of what the Stones are, not, not just supposedly what their musical peak was. And they made albums superior, in my view, to what they did in 73 and 74 later on. So what we view as classic is a, a reflection of where we come from with our own age, the time we started enjoying them, our environment, the, the narratives we're subjected to. Totally. And, and that reminds me actually of a point I wanted to get to earlier, which was um, the big four really being a heavy influence on the kind of, for lack of a better term, white classic rock vibe. And uh, it can 
be a little bit of a trigger for when an album like Black and Blue comes on, where it's a very spacey album in terms of structure, you know, of the song, I would say. Compositionally, these are very loose jams and dance tracks and it gets you moving. So like you said, Scott, something like Hot Stuff would offend someone uh, who was primarily a fan of those early albums. And I don't know how... But then they're not really enjoying or hearing... I mean, Brown Sugar is completely danceable, right? It's it's so they're not really they're 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 just appreciating a certain aspect of the, of the music, but not not the the fact that it's always been danceable rock. And, and I'm glad you brought up those albums because to me, I think Black and Blue is you know with Oliver Jars, various forms of danceable rock, soul, blues, reggae, funk, even something like Hey Negrita, which is really dancey funk rock track funky it's still a rock track but it's funky i think it's more representative of the stones career as a whole than something like sticky fingers and they've always been a band who do all these jars exile is full of it, it runs the whole gamut of american musical you know gospel soul blues it's all there and i've made this point before with justin exile on main street is produced and arranged like it's not whenever the the stones are there at their greatest when they're raw and not too slick or not too glossy, and which is not to say that Exile Main Street is glossy or slick, but it is very much produced. It is an artifact of a recording studio and recording technology. Got horns and background singers, and uh, so it's you know it's not just guys on a porch. You know it's. That's another myth, along with the rockest prejudice, if you want to call it that. It's the, the prejudice that it has to be raw and everything handmade. And anytime there's a drum machine or a synthesizer, then they've deviated from the, the core mission of what the Stones are supposed to be about. Is there a prescription here? Is there anything we could offer that person who has that gap, who says, well, okay, fine, maybe that is the reason why I don't like emotional rescue. but um, is there anything we could offer say, well, you know, there's another way to listen to this band and here it is. I would just say my, just listen, like find out if the person, if there is a, if somebody's actually open-minded about post 1972 stones and just actually sit down and listen without prejudice. What do you think of already over me is a terrific recording. Like, how can you not like that? I mean, maybe it's not a hit. It was never a single. But how can you listen to that and not think that's a great song? I, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's really a, a mindset thing. You know, I have experienced that too in my, my own life or a new genre of music and you're listening to it. Ah, I don't get that at all. But the more you listen to it, the more you open. Oh, I, now I start, it's, it's seeping in. Now, now I start, suddenly I'm enjoying this record after 10 plays that I thought was awful at, on first play. I'm discovering a new, new genres of music. Yeah, and, and I, I wonder now how much of it is a bit of, I guess, nostalgia maybe, because I mean, um, when you move on from 1972 to a 1979 or a 78, even the aesthetic of the recording changes dramatically. You know, the way things were recorded, I would say they, were, they sounded better in those years from some girls on to undercover. I, I, the truth is, I listened to those big, the, the second big four, Ian, as you've labeled them, I listened to them more often than the 
proper big four if that's the truth i mean if you were to look at my spotify it would be a lot of tracks from that run and i know for myself i enjoy the fidelity the clarity however you want to describe it of those recordings i think they sounded fantastic so that's just to be a cherry on top for what makes those um albums so special but i do wonder how much of it is people having a friction between oh the early 70s early 60s sound and production value to the more shinier perhaps stuff happening in the late 70s yeah and i think the late 70s especially is probably i i think you know, the, the, again, the Stones are, are various things throughout their career, but they were still a jam band a bit in the late 70s and since they, they would spend a lot of time in the studio and jam on a riff and I'm sure Mick would bring in song ideas, but they could still, you know, spend 20 minutes playing the same track. And there's a real, um, there's there's also like an energy to those. There's Stones is always full of, are always full of energy, but when I think of that late period, stuff like, not just because it's punkish, but there's so much bite on a song, song like Where the Boys Go. And Keith was also, I think, maybe at a peak in terms of really stinging playing, you know, both rhythm and lead. This, you know, the, the bass and drums and guitar swing was at its, its peak. And I don't want to, I don't want to create another myth that this is, this is the Stones, the 78 to 82 or 77 to 82 is the Stones at their peak. And, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's equally strong. And depending on your preference, you could, you could, uh, you could chew that instead. Our beef here is really with people who write about rock music. Honestly, that's, yeah. I don't know if, how many actual walking, living, breathing human beings actually think about, this is about people who write about rock music, critics and have, and they all, and a lot of it, because I've been there, I've done it not to great success. A lot of it is just people being lazy. That's all it is. It's writers being lazy and repeating something that they've read before from Lester Bangs or whoever and not actually listening. I, I'm, I'm with you totally because every time I hear people who are in this conversation about, oh, the other albums in the Stones catalog post or before the big four, and they always dismiss them i always wonder are you so busy are you such a busy person like uh, while wow, you're a very important person that you can only have time for these 30 25 songs on these four albums or whatever it is you know like oh god forbid you flip on you know uh, emotional rescue the album or undercover like you know apparently you've got so much things to do so like yeah i think laziness has a lot to do with it and i don't know it, it seems like it's such a flimsy thing to say when they say something like that but some of it is, if I go back to this guy, um, the art economics historian, David Gallinson, some of it is just not in our hands at all as listeners. There is a judgment of history that will, will exist beyond what our opinions are. Like when we're all dead and gone, what is going to be listened? It's going to be those four albums. I mean, so this is kind of, in addition to the, the hits, the songs we all know, it's, the stuff that matters, like the reason the Stones are, are seen to have dipped is because they, all these other big things came along and were bigger than they were. Whether it's Prince, Michael Jackson, Grunge, Guns N' Roses, that you're, you're, there's no arguing. They're not going to, we're not going to be able to ever overcome that argument. Could uh, I bring into the, the, yeah. the, the thing about those four albums also, they came, you know, we're, we haven't talked about historically there. We're, we're in the middle of a, 
the six, late 60s, early 70s counterculture. And these songs have a lot of significance. You can't always get you what you want, give me shelter, whatever. So the sympathy, sympathy for the devil. So in the mid 70s, things start beating something culturally. There's a deflation. Huh? So the stones can no longer be as relevant. You know, Lester Bangs would say, black and blue, this is the first meaningless stones album. And yeah. thank God. Yeah, yeah. Like the, the, so part of those big four being enshrined that way is because of that too. And the, the period they were in and, you know, the, the, and they, they, we don't, not that we live in, not that history after is less significant, but there was, there's something historically unique about that period and for rock music. Think of 1968 and Street Fighting Man being banned and riots in Paris. What is the French phrase for the 68ers? Yes, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The 68ers. That's what they call themselves. The student movements and protests and the Stones are a soundtrack to that. And you just can't, they're not going to ever matter like that. They were never going to matter like that in the same way. You know, like the People said about the Clash when they were the Clash are the only band that matters. So these are judgments that we can't overcome. But I think what we should urge people is get that while you're alive. Just listen, forget about these judgments. Forget about the essential playlist that Apple Music King, essentially about the music instead of the cultural significance. It's two Art. completely different things. Just we're listen. In- yeah. I'll take terrifying any day over. Uh, uh, in closing, uh, this is a challenge. How do, if, if you have to suggest one album post Undercover, I would have a little, could have said Tattoo You, but I think we, we're officially saying Undercover is a great album and should be uh, assumed that that's going to be part of the, the big stuff. So post Undercover, one album that this person who is unfamiliar with this era after that, that should look into that uh, would be the good carrot to dangle in front of them to say, oh, this would be the good album to get you to listen more. What album would that be? I, it's you, Buddha Lounge or Bridges to Babylon. I, I can't, couldn't decide. Maybe Bridges to Babylon, I'll say. Yeah, I'd, I'd say the same thing. But again, it would depend on that person's openness to begin with. If they're yeah. not, Bridges to Babylon will be a huge turnoff. Oh, no, no. We're forcing this in. I don't care. Okay, <laughs> to them. Okay. I, I would I would say the same thing. Um, I would say Bridges to Babylon, but you know the, I, I'm biased towards that, towards that album greatly. So, uh, but it would have to be yeah. There's a tie there between Voodoo Lounge and Bridges to Babylon to me too. I wish a bigger bang was a bigger bang, <laughs> but it's not. It's 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 a little bit moldy. Well, um, I think this was a complete success of a of a conversation. If anything, it gets it got me thinking about a lot of things and a lot of things that I didn't consider before. Hopefully this, I mean, it looks like we're changing the conversation around undercover. So maybe we're going to change the views on, on, on these things. What do you guys think? We're going to da- go down trying. We're going to, we're, we're not going to change the, the, the music press. That's for sure. No, no it's just, it's a juggernaut. There's no way, but, but that's the beauty of YouTube and things like things can reach people directly and do a, a workaround of the cultural criticism and, and, and just finding like-minded people like us like like part of the audience and just the fact that we just talk get around about the gatekeepers the, about these stuff this stuff you know we reinforces our uh, another another opinion oh i don't feel i don't have to feel bad because 
Exile is not my favorite album, for example. Mm-hmm. Or even can use It's Okay. Or like, <laughs> exactly. Looks not there. Well, uh, so uh, but, gatekeeper. well it's, yeah, they get around the gatekeeper. That's, that's fantastic. I think that should be the moral of the story. Let's go around the room and tell everyone how to find your uh, fantastic works. Everyone has amazing works. And I want everyone to be aware where to find them. Scott, want to start? Scott Galupo, the name right there. You can search that. Or Keith Richards Riff Cousins on YouTube. For me, the, the website is ta- timeisonourside.com. Fantastic. I'll put the links in the description below. Gentlemen, thank you so much. This was great fun. Thank you, Justin. Thank you, Ian. It was great. Thank you to both.